easy because we're going to just be in one book this time, John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. This is the second half of lesson number 24, Tackling Tradition, part 2. And I had a struggle getting this all in one lesson. Now, wouldn't that have been something if I had to make three lessons out of lesson 24? Hopefully, I'll speak fast and we'll get through this. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you now thanking you and praising your name and worshiping you and, and just giving you honor for who you are. Lord, thank you so much for, for creating this universe, for creating each of us. Father, thank you that your ways are higher than our ways, that your thoughts are greater and higher than our thoughts. Thank you, Father, that uh, you sent your Son into this world to take our sins upon himself and die in our place, that we might spend eternity in your presence. And thank you, Father, as we're looking at law. We just, especially today as we look at some of the Sabbath laws, thank you so much that we are not under law. A man is not saved by the works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, of course, that the law was a schoolmaster to us to bring us to Jesus so that we might be justified by faith. Thank you, Father, that uh, you give us your word so that we might know you. And I pray now that we would focus solely on your word and what your Holy Spirit has to teach us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through your word. For we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. The old torn garment and the old inflexible wineskin of the Lord's first two parables, which we looked at last week, were not, I want to make sure you understand this, they were not symbolic of the Judaism which was established by God in the Old Testament. That's not what they symbolized. Rather, they were symbolic of the rabbinical traditions that had taken and twisted Judaism to the point that those traditions and rules and regulations actually overshadowed and even in many situations contradicted the divinely real, revealed truth of God's word. And we find this probably nowhere more apparent than with regard to the matter of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a divinely instituted day of rest, but the Jews had actually twisted and turned things around so much that instead of being a day of rest, it became a day of burden for the Jewish people. It had become with all of its myriad of man-made rules and regulations, a day of great oppressive frustration and anxiety for the people. Anxiety because they were so afraid they were going to break one of the, the, the rabbinical rules about the Sabbath. So the Lord Jesus, therefore, to re-educate Israel by teaching them God's true intention his true intention for the Sabbath and how the Sabbath is to be honored, the Lord Jesus purposely performed many of his miracles on what day? Now, could he have healed people on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, any other day of the week? Yes, he could have, but he purposely performed many of it. We've already seen some of the miracles he performed on the Sabbath when he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there was a demoniac in, in, the, in the synagogue. And he cast a demon out of him. And then he went home to Peter's house. And who did he heal that day? Peter's mother-in-law. And we're going to see now another miracle which he performed purposely on the Sabbath day. And that is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. So uh, that's the content for our lesson today. We're going to be looking at the third part of our ongoing lesson. And that third part is Bethesda's invalid. And under that section, I did a little play on words. We're going to look at the invalid walks. And then we're going to look at the invalid wrath. So let's begin by looking at the invalid walks. And for this, we'll look at John 5, verses 1 to 9. John says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years." When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? 
The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was, what? The Sabbath. Now, in this account by John, we find that Jesus, who has been up in Galilee, remember, left that province to the north to go to Jerusalem in Judea. And you notice it always says up, and that's not because it's up directionally. It's actually south, so it's down, but it's up because Jerusalem's set up on a hill. And he went down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, obviously to uh, celebrate one of the feasts. And by the way, John, we're in John now because John's gospel tells us more about Jesus' activities in Jerusalem and in Judea than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John centers on Jesus when he's in Jerusalem or Judea, whereas the others, you know, do a lot more focusing on Galilee. Anyway, so he obviously went there to celebrate one of the feasts, and commentators are unagreed on which feast this may have been, although many lean toward the Passover uh, an almost an equal number leaned toward the Feast of Tabernacles, and some even suggest some other t- feasts. So I don't really know. That would take us a whole lesson to figure out, but we, you don't want to do that, right? It really doesn't matter. Bottom line is we don't really, it doesn't matter what feast it was. It just was one of the feasts. And notice that under divine inspiration, John called it the Feast of the Jews. Now, that's interesting because in the Old Testament scripture, the feasts are called the Feasts of the Lord, the Feasts of Jehovah. But here, John refers to them as, as it, this one, the Feast of the Jews. And that's indicative of the spiritual decline that had taken place in Israel. You know, this is uh, typical of so many things which begin with God as the focus. The Feast of the Lord. You know, many, many things have begun with God as the focus. Many institutions in this country began with God as their focus. <coughs> But they end with man. They end with man getting in the way and becoming the main focus. And when this happens, you know what? You can count on one thing. You can count on the fact that the blessings will diminish when the focus goes from the Lord to man. When the feast of the Lord had become the feast of the Jews, the blessings diminished immensely. It had become a feast of form and a feast of ritual instead of one of faith. You know, and do you think we see this today? You know, how greatly do we see this at the time of our, you know, as Christians, we don't really have any feast days. But we have some Christian holidays, uh, Christmas and Easter. Has the focus switched (laughs) from the Lord to man or to from the Lord to mammon, to materialism? Absolutely. I mean, you're hard-pressed sometimes to, to find anything about Christ in Christmas or Christ and his resurrection at Easter time. Well, anyway, while the Lord was in Jerusalem for the feast, he walked near to the sheep gate. And that was one of the gates surrounding the city. And you can read about that in Nehemiah 3.1. The the sheep gate, which is today called St. Stephen's Gate, because apparently Stephen was martyred near there. The sheep gate got that name because it was the gate through which the sacrificial animals were brought to the temple. It was, if you can see this little map, it was uh, in the, near the northeast corner of the temple. So actually in our lesson today, you're going to understand and learn that the pool of Bethesda was very close to the temple. When the man gets healed, he goes straight to the temple. It's only about 200 yards away, very close. <clears throat> And I know you don't read sheep gate. You see in verse 2 it says sheep and then it has market in parentheses. The word, any word in in your Bible that's in parentheses, I mean not parentheses, in italics is not in the original. And uh, the sheep market was actually right near the sheep gate. So whether you want to say sheep gate or sheep market, it really doesn't matter. But the word market's not in the original. Most commentators say it was sheep gate that they're talking about here. Anyway, it was in the same vicinity as a pool, Bethesda's pool, which literally in the Greek means plunging bath. And uh, it's called in Hebrew Bethesda. And we're also told there were five porches there. Now, the five porches mentioned 
by John here refer to five covered porticos of, of uh, uh, p- colonnades. And they were provided in order to accommodate and shelter the many invalids who sought healing from the pool of Bethesda. Actually, archaeologists have discovered, and I have been there and seen the pool of Bethesda, that there really were two pools, a north pool and a south pool, and they were surrounded by four colonnades or porticos on each side with with one in the middle between the two pools, so that was your fifth. And in a later picture, you'll see how they had a sort of an arch to cover the people that were invalids so they could actually get out of the rain and stuff while they were waiting for this uh, troubling of the water, which we'll talk about. Now, the name Bethesda in Hebrew means literally house of mercy or house of compassion. And therefore, we find how this place was obviously divinely orchestrated to be a set, the setting for one of Christ's compassionate, merciful miracles. Isn't that appropriate that he did this merciful miracle at Bethesda, the house of mercy? Actually, if you think about it, the Lord Jesus himself is the house of mercy, is he not? Just as he is the house of bread. Where was he born? Bethlehem means house of bread. He's the house of bread. He's the house of mercy. And even the number of porches, which is five, is very appropriate because it's the scriptural number for grace. And he certainly demonstrated grace in the miracle that he performed here at Bethesda, just as it is is his grace that encompasses all those who will come to him as their house of mercy, house of compassion. Now, John's mention of the sheep gate, or market, also serves to remind us Uh, that it is only by way of the sacrificial offering of Christ himself, the true Lamb of God, that all sinners who are pictured in this account by all that that myriad of invalids laying around there, um, this is a picture that only by way of the sacrificial offering of Christ can we sinners find mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins. So it's just absolutely a beautiful picture here. And then speaking of the invalids surrounding the pools, we learn in verse 3 that the great multitude consisted of what? Four types. And four in the Bible is the number for man. There were four types of invalids. We read about the impotent, that means the weak, powerless, you know, totally helpless or paralyzed people, the blind, The halt, that refers primarily to feet. The halt means those who are lame or crippled, can't walk. And then we have the withered. Those are people who were deformed in some way. It usually refers refers to hands and arms, but it can be withered or deformed in other ways as well. So symbolically, this whole multitude represented the nation of Israel. Was Israel spiritually impotent? At that time, yes, she was, because she no longer had any power in the form of religion, which Judaism had become. And she was, was she spiritually blind? For the most part, yes, she was spiritually blind, because as a nation, she was in darkness, and she refused to accept the one who stood in her midst and offered to uh, open her eyes, you know, to the true light. And she was halt, H-A-L-T, because apart from Christ, she could not walk in uh, the the true spiritual walk. She couldn't walk in in newness of life. And she was spiritually withering away. You know, uh, Jesus says in John 15 that uh, he is the vine and we are the branches. And any branch which does not abide in the vine is what? It, It is cast forth and it withers away. Well, not only did this great multitude of impotent, blind, halt, and withered people represent Israel, but guess what? Represented all of mankind, which is what I try to have here in this picture. The the multitude there of impotent folk also represent mankind. Apart from Jesus Christ, the one who housed mercy, the giver of grace, and the true lamb, all men are helpless, and as it says in Romans 5, 6, without strength. We are all hopeless and without strength. Apart from Christ, we are all lying, so to speak, at the gate of some dead religion or hoping in some superstitious mystical cure for our helplessness in the face of imminent death. 
How many people are out there hoping in, you know, some dead religion, some pagan religion, um, or, or some superstitious, mystical kind of thing for, for their eternity, their, their um, hope of life after death? Well, John tells us now in verses 3 and 4 that it was the hope of each of those in this great Bethesda multitude that he or she would be miraculously healed by being the first one to step down into the waters after they had been troubled. Now, there are steps that go down into those pools. <clears throat> the, uh, the popular explanation at that time for this periodic disturbance of the waters of Bethesda was that an angel did it. An angel would come down and stir the waters. That's the popular explanation. Now, there is no doubt at all in my mind, that God could do that. If God wanted to, he could, could he send an angel down to stir up the waters every now and then? Did he send an angel to uh, release Peter from prison? Yes. So God could have done this if he had wanted to. And that may be the case. On the other hand, it may simply also be the explanation that the people themselves gave for this periodic bubbling of the water, which was caused perhaps by a subterranean pocket of energy, you know, either air or stream, like there are today across the world, uh, many underground natural springs which provide some kind of therapeutic um, aspect to people. You know, I remember when we were in Chile, we went to some hot springs, and they had pools all over where people came from, literally all around the world. I couldn't believe it. Everybody we talked to was from another country, and they came there to sit in the hot pools because... They believed that they had some kind of therapeutic, and in a way they do, especially hot springs. You know, there are many volcanoes around there, so there was a lot of um, hot, hot water. Anyway, so that could be also, and they do say that there is an underground uh, spring near this pool of Bethesda. So that may also be the explanation. Apparently, somehow, um, it was only the first person, however, who got into the pool after it started bubbling, the first person who received any kind of um, benefit from the waters. So, and we could spend another lesson going into all of that, but I'd rather not. Let's just leave it as that because we really don't know, okay? So this was the scene on the day of the Lord, the, the, the day that the Lord appeared at Bethesda's pool and saw, it says, a certain man lying there, one who had an infirmity, and what's interesting to notice is that, that the word infirmity, now is John our physician? No, no. John is our theologian, remember? <laughs> Who is our physician? Gospel writer, Luke. Okay, so it's interesting that this word infirmity is used by Luke one time over in Luke thirteen eleven, and he uses that same Greek word for the woman that Jesus healed who was all crippled over. And actually, I looked up the Greek word, and it, it refers to, and Luke would do this, you know. Luke always gives us the key as to the, the nature of the infirmity. Luke um, tells us that this was a fused invertebrate. So, uh, and that, it had made that woman totally crippled over. And apparently, uh, because this man, in this case, was lying down, and he tells Jesus that he had no man to put him in the pool. And later he's told to, to rise. We know that not only was the man crippled over with a fused invertebrate, perhaps, probably, but also he couldn't what? He couldn't walk. He was actually probably worse than that crippled over woman. He couldn't walk. He was crippled to the point that he could not move around very well at all, obviously without the help of others. Now, the Lord, of course, being omniscient, all-knowing, knew the situation with the man immediately, as he had with Nicodemus, as he had with Nathaniel, um, and as he had with the woman at the well, and, of course, as he has with every person, because he knows us like an open book. So the Lord Jesus not only knew the man's condition, <clears throat> but he knew the reason for it, as we will see. Uh, in this case, it was due to his own sin. You know, sickness is always not a result of somebody's sin, but in this case, yes, it was. We know that. All right, so he not only knew his condition and the reason for it, but he knew the length of it. How long had the man been in this condition? Can you imagine? 38 years. 
That's a long time. And interestingly, that this was also the number of years God punished Israel for her unbelief. If you want to look at Deuteronomy 2.14, you'll find that to be very interesting. 38 years. Deuteronomy 2.14. I'm not going to take the time or we'll go overboard, but look that up on your own. John Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, quote, How can we measure the misery of this man? He had no friends, no family. Remember, because he says what? He had no man to put him in the water. His companions were life's victims, blind people, lame people, people withered up inside and out. All their hopes had shrunk to the chance that they had of outsmarting the others and being the first in the pool. There would be the usual jockeying for position, all the intensity of people obsessed with their own physical condition, and their pathetic hope of a healing. The sight, the stench of it all, must have been depressing. Here was institutionalized misery, unending poverty. Because this man could not work, cynicism, no doubt, had taken root in his mind. He had almost given up hope. He would watch the new arrivals, see how the others eyed them, made sure that they were pushed to the back, you know, farthest away from the pool. Or if one was still too strong for that, he would see how they eyed that person with hatred and cursed him as a rival. Had this man heard of Jesus? Had news of the healer from Nazareth filtered into this enclave of misery? Surely so. But if this Jesus was that great of a healer, why didn't he come here and heal them all? End of quote. Jesus, seeing the man, knowing the condition of the man, and knowing that this particular stage... Oh, wait a minute. I'm supposed to still have that up there. Knowing that this particular stage had been set you know, in eternity past for him to not only bring this man to himself, but to exhibit his own power and authority over what day of the week? Over the Sabbath. The Lord, as always, took the first step. Speaking of steps, you know, stepping down into the pool and being the first one in there. Who took the first step in this situation, as always? The Lord Jesus took the first step in the salvation process of this man and asked him a very thought-provoking question. Wilt thou be made whole? I hope you know by now that the Lord Jesus does not ask irrelevant or stupid questions. You know, this might to somebody on the surface look like, oh, that's a pretty irrelevant question. Um, obviously, this, this man, after 38 years, would want to be healed. Um, but let me get back to something else. Even though on the one hand here we see the sovereign hand of God in salvation because it is he, and I go into this in length in the notes, but I'm not going to here, um, we see God's sovereignty here. Because it was Jesus who elected to, to heal just this one man from a great multitude of people lying around. He didn't go around and heal all of them, did he? No, he just stopped with this one man. So we see God's hand, sovereign hand. You know, Does he have the right to heal or to save who he wants to? Yes, he does. But yet, on the other hand, we also see how human will plays a part in salvation. The Lord Jesus does not save anyone against their own will, ever. And so the question was put to this man, wilt thou be made whole? You know, even though the man needed physical healing, what the Lord here was really getting to <clears throat> was obviously trying to reach into his soul to touch his spiritual needs as well. And we'll see that. He not only heals him physically, but spiritually. Now, the, the man had been in his invalid condition for so very long that perhaps he could not even really envision any other kind of a lifestyle. It could be, you know, and this is true with many impotent people, people who are sick or without work, that uh, he had actually gotten used to being on welfare <laughs> and dependent on other people, maybe to the point where he didn't really desire to have a change be, as is also true even more with spiritually impotent people, that he was content to, to remain where he was in his sin. 
It, it, you know, it might seem totally foolish to think that the impotent man might not really want Jesus to heal him. But the reality is that literally there are millions and millions of people who are willing to try anything and everything except Jesus Christ for their healing. And these people were all lying around hoping an angel would come from heaven and, and stir the waters and they could be the first ones to get themselves into the water and be healed. And that's really a picture of mankind. The more you think about it, it really is a very appropriate picture of mankind. God offers by his grace and his compassion all men the Lamb of God, his Son, who can take away the helpless, hopeless condition of their wilderness lives and bring them into the promised land of eternal life. But he will not force anyone to be saved. He will not force salvation on anyone. Therefore, he asks the question, Wilt thou be made whole? Now, this man, after 38 long years, may have sunk so low that he had given up all hope. I, I would think that would be the case. After, you know, month after month, year after year, count out 38 years, that's a long time. He had probably given up all hope and perhaps even longed for, for death to relieve him from his suffering. So the Lord's question was also intended to uh, help shake the stupor from his spirit. You know, that question would help to stimulate his will. It would reactivate his hope. Actually, um, actually, the Lord's question included four assumptions. Think about this, too. I don't have these in your notes, but it assumed that question, question wilt thou be made whole, assumed that the man was not whole, right? Wilt thou be made whole assumes he's not whole, and we know he wasn't. It also assumes that he could be made whole. Third, the question implied that it depended on the man's will whether or not he would be made whole. And fourthly, it implied that the one asking could give him the wholeness if the man willed to be made whole. The man's response, which was given with a, a certain tone of uh, resignation, tells us that it was a lack, uh, um, it was a lack of opportunity and not a lack of will on his part that had actually prevented him from being the first one into those stirred, troubled waters. So with respect, he answered Jesus by saying, and there is a respect here when he says, Sir, he says, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, now what does that imply? While I am coming, that implies that somehow or another he was trying to move himself to, uh, to get to the water. And since he can't walk, it, he was probably trying to get there by crawling on his belly or dragging himself with his arms somehow or another. Um, so he says, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So this man, we see here, it was a lack of opportunity, not a lack of will. And this man was in really quite a dilemma. He had probably been brought to Bethesda as a teenager or a young man, because if you do the figuring, if he was brought, let's say, at 18, and then you add, uh, I can't imagine parents bringing a child, and it also, it, we also know that it was his sin which caused his problem, so I would assume he was at least a teenager when he was struck with this infirmity, um, so let's say 17, 18, you add 38 years, that puts him in his mid-50s. If you say he was a young man, then he's even older. So this is an older um, a man. And uh, if you figure, you think of his dilemma, he'd been trying month after month, year after year, to beat everyone else into the waters whenever they began to, to bubble up, and yet he could never get to the waters before someone else. Unlike the paralytic who was lowered through the roof, this man had no faithful friends. Apparently, he had no family either who was willing to come and try to help him get into the pool first. <clears throat> so there was no one to help put him into the pool. So for half of a lifetime, 38 years he'd been lying there. His initial hope would probably long before this have given way to despair 
and to dull acceptance of the fact that he was just going to probably sit here for the rest of his life until death took him. His only companions were life's other victims, and those companions were also his competitors, right? To try to get into the water first. So what an awful situation. Now, if you notice, the man, in his answer to the Lord's question, will thou be made whole? The man's answer in verse 7 did not really tell Jesus that he did desire to be made whole. He only told him why he had never been first into the troubled waters. However, the Lord knew the man's heart. He knew that it was not for a lack of will, but for a lack of opportunity that the man had not been healed. And he knew that the man did indeed desire to be to be changed, his, for his condition to be changed. The problem had really been that the man had been seeking the cure for his condition in the wrong direction. He had been looking for man's help, right? He had been looking for some man to put him into the, to the pool when he should have been looking for God's help. Also, he still thought that he himself needed to do something to be healed. That's when he says, while I am coming. You know, it's a works kind of a thing. While I am trying to get to the water to be healed. When in truth, it would be when Christ came that he would receive his cure, which we're going to see was centered on his sin problem. So at any rate, the Lord, seeing that the man did will to be healed, he put him to another test. The Lord put him to another test. He would give him a command... Now, here's where you can see the porticos, okay, it's where the, the invalids would get under that shelter part there and wait by the side of the pool. But um, this picture isn't really accurate in the number because it says a great multitude. There were many, many, many people around these pools. All right, so the Lord is going to give him another test. He'd give him a command to test his faith. Therefore, Jesus, the only unfailing friend of the friendless, said, Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. And it was a command, you see, that demanded obedience and faith in the one who was making it. The man could have laughed at him. He could have laughed cynically at Jesus. And many people would have. But the man did not hesitate in his obedience. And this tells us that he truly was eager to be cured. John, it's interesting, who is the gospel writer who uses the word immediately, over and over, or straight away? Mark, yes. But here, John uses the word immediately. This is once of only two times John uses the word immediately, and one is right here. He says that immediately the man was made whole. Um, in verse 9, he arose, took up his bed pallet, and walked. You see, his healing was immediate because so was his obedience. The obedience took place in his will. He immediately determined in his will that he was going to do what this man told him to do. And as soon as Jesus knew his will was being obedient, he healed his body and the man was able at that instance to do what? Something he hadn't done in 38 years. He was it. So not only was his healing immediate, it was complete because he did everything that the Lord told him to do. And if you haven't been on your legs and your vertebrae has been fused for 38 years, it, you'd think it was going to take a little bit of while to stretch out and you know, atrophy to, the muscles to fill out. But this was instant. He was immediately able to get up on strong legs, to roll up his bed pallet, and to walk. So he not only received total and instant healing, but he received an infusion of strength which made him able to do all of this. And that, folks, is a miracle, isn't it? That's a true miracle. It's also a true and wonderful miracle every time an individual wills to be made whole by placing his or her faith in Christ's commands. And he then is also, or she, is able to rise up and to walk in newness of life. Is it a miracle every time somebody is saved? It's the greatest miracle of all. And if you haven't experienced that miracle, please really seriously think about the Lord's question. Wilt thou be made whole? All you have to do is will to be made whole, and he will make you whole. 
All right, let's look at the invalid wrath now as we look at verses 10 to 18. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. (laughs) Talk about wet blankets. (laughs) He answered them. Now, this is the man, the healed invalid. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same, said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not. In other words, he didn't know who it was. For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews, the religious rulers, that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because not only had because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Well, as most new Christians will soon come to discover, as soon as you begin to walk in newness of life in Jesus Christ, there is going to be opposition. And much of the time, guess where the opposition comes from? The religious crowd, the religious establishment. Satan is at his best when he disguises his evil under religious garments. The healed invalid now, who was obviously on his way to the nearby temple, which was only about 200 yards away, was soon brought to a stop by some of the Jews, meaning the religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees, who confronted him for his violation of the Sabbath. They said, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Now, think about if the fact that that this man had been an invalid At Bethesda's pool for 38 years, Bethesda's pool is just a hop, skip, and a jump from the temple. Um, Probably everyone in Jerusalem at least knew his face by now. And even if these Jews did not recognize him as the longtime invalid, the fact that he was coming from the area of the pool and he was carrying a bed with him showed that he had been uh, an invalid of some kind. He, um, as I said, he was also coming from the Bethesda pool area. Anyway, this would indicate something about him. And imagine if he hadn't worked for 38 years and had no fr- friends and family. I imagine he's dressed pretty shabbily as well. Yet, rather than rejoicing with this man who could walk after 38 long years of a disabling infirmity, all these self-appointed uh, religious cops, these little robo, uh, what do you call them, robocops, <laughs> All they could focus on was his desecration of of their restriction about carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. And you can be sure, you can be 100% sure that carrying that rolled up bed pallet was no burden to that man at all. He was probably flying high for joy, you know, for having been healed. Now, the scripture in Jeremiah 17:21 does say bear no burden on the Sabbath day. But th- that was in reference to bearing a burden that was to be brought through the gates. This was another thing with them, you know, you weren't supposed to bring and they he, the man had gone through the sheep gate in order to get to the temple. It says in Jeremiah also over in Nehemiah 13:19 that no burden was to be carried and brought through the gates on the Sabbath day into the city. But that was speaking with regard to merchants bringing in their wares uh, into the city on the Sabbath in order to sell them. You know, so this was, it was a law which was intended to protect the people from those whose God was greed. In other words, there was to be no market on, on the um, Sabbath. And by the way, when did the Sabbath day begin? 
It began at sunset on Friday, and it, lasted, it was actually announced at sunset by three blasts of a trumpet from the temple and from every synagogue all throughout Israel would announce the beginning of the Sabbath with three blasts of a trumpet, and then it would end at, um, did I say sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. Now, in truth, it was not the law of Moses about honoring the Sabbath, uh, and that you can find in Exodus 20, verse 8, or in the passages that I just told you about in Jeremiah or Nehemiah. It was none of those laws that had been violated either by the man carrying his pallet or by the Lord healing the man. Rather, it was the traditions of the, the Pharisees which had been violated. The Jews who had confronted the man were incensed because one of their 1,512 rules, can you imagine? They had 1,512 rules regarding the Sabbath. They were upset because one of them had been broken. What the religious rulers of Israel had done over the centuries was to take God's law about honoring the Sabbath and not working on the Sabbath, and they had elaborated on it to the point that there were so many do's and don'ts that the Sabbath, instead of being a day of rest, had become a day of bondage for the people. It had become a real burden. Talking about carrying a burden, they were really carrying a burden on the Sabbath because they were so scared to death of breaking one of the rules or regulations. I remember, you know, some people love to be little robo-cops. You know, and my kids have all gone to Christian schools, and there's been <laughs> some funny things that have happened over the years. But, but, but some of the RAs or whatever they're called, the resident advisors or those who are put in positions of authority, have gone kind of like the Pharisees, fanatical about things. And I remember one time when my son was at the Word of Life Bible Institute for a year, he uh, was walking along, and, and he was walking on the sidewalk because they were not allowed to walk on the grass, all right? If you walked on the grass, you got a demerit. He was on the sidewalk, but there was a blade of grass that was actually growing over onto the sidewalk, and he stepped on the blade of grass, and this robocop got him and gave him demerits. And, I mean, I thought, wow, that's really, this is, a, a, you know, like these guys, 1,512 rules about the Sabbath. <clears throat> Uh, from Moses' words, thou shalt not work, they had derived a system of 39 works. And to commit any one of them was a father's sin. If you did any one of these 39 works on the Sabbath, that was called a father work or a father's sin. And the one who offended a father work was to be punished by being stoned to death, if he did so intentionally. Now, if they were a little lenient, you know, if he didn't really violate that father work intentionally, like my son stepping on that blade of grass, he didn't do that intentionally, then you merely had to present a sin offering at the temple. But if you did it intentionally, you were put to death. Now, from each of those 39 father works or father sins, there were literally dozens of son works or descendant works. It was, for example, <clears throat> a father work to plow on the Sabbath. So if you were intentionally plowing up your field on the Sabbath day, you were stoned to death. <clears throat> now, a, a and I don't know how you could not intentionally plow. <laughs> a, a descendant work or a, a son work of plowing on the Sabbath was digging. Okay, that's a son of plowing. However, the Jews got themselves so tangled up because then, then they had to define all these things. So how do you define digging? Okay, they would literally spend hundreds of hours debating back and forth about what constituted di digging. And it got so insane <laughs> that uh, they decided that digging went so far as to include a, a person simply flicking a piece of dirt with his finger. So if I, if it, you know, if I was down there and I did that in the dirt, that would be digging because that little piece of dirt actually moved when I flicked it. Um, it also included dragging a chair across the ground because the chair leg might make a rut and that would have to be considered a form of digging or even plowing. They even determined, now this one I just had to laugh at, this one, they even determined that it was okay for a person to spit on pavement. 
<laughs> but you could not spit on the ground. And the almost insane reason for this, you could spit on the pavement, but you couldn't spit on the ground, the earth, is because the spitter might accidentally or purposely rub the spittle <laughs> with his foot. And that rubbed spittle would scratch the surface of the ground, and that scratch would be a form of digging. Now, I'm not making this up. This is real. This is true. Another one of the 39 father sins was carrying a burden on the Sabbath. That's the one we're talking about here. And some of the, I don't have that up here, but some of the descendants, descendant sins or sons sins of this got so carried away that a person could not wear his false teeth on the Sabbath <laughs> because it was considered carrying a burden. They defined what's a burden, okay? So they finally came up with the fact that a burden was um, carrying anything that was heavier than a dried fig. <laughs> I don't know how much a dried fig weighs, but not very much. They also decided that it was okay for a person to, to walk with a crutch. They were very lenient there, weren't they? You could walk with a crutch or with a wooden leg on the Sabbath, although it was better not to. But walking on stilts was forbidden. I don't know how many people walk around on stilts, but you couldn't walk on stilts because they decided that the stilts did not carry the man, but it was the man who carried the stilts. And there were all, all kinds of lengthy rules were formulated concerning absolutely every aspect of life. I mean, you know, once they got rolling with this thing, they had to go the whole, the whole length of it. So even down to what type of knot, K-N-O-T, what type of knot you could tie on the Sabbath. I mean, there, there were certain knots you could tie you, and certain knots you couldn't tie. Also, they decided that you could not write two letters of the alphabet. At the, at, you could not write more than one letter. If you wrote two letters of the alphabet, you were um, writing, and that was considered a work. You could take one stitch with the needle, but you couldn't take two stitches because that was considered work. And therefore, a tailor um, or a, um, a writer, <laughs> a scribe, had to be very, very careful that when the sun went down on Friday night, he didn't have his needle with him or his pen with him because uh, it might have weighed more than a dried fig, but I doubt it. But if, if, they were, if they had those pieces of equipment on them, they might be tempted to work. They might be tempted to write more than two letters or so two, more than two stitches. Also, it was a, a, a totally, it was a great violation of the Sabbath to, to kindle, to start, or to put out a fire. To kindle or put out a fire was a great violation of the Sabbath, and it was never justifi justified, even in the case of an emergency. So even if you have a very, very sick grandmother um, freezing to death and having a, a sickness, you could not light a fire. And that's why Jewish people today always, you know, they have automatic lights even <laughs> that come on um, so they, don't turn the, they can't turn the light switch on. Orthodox Jews will not do this to this day, turn the light on or, or take it off on the Sabbath. And on and on it goes, and we're going to talk more about this in the next two weeks. You'll learn even some more things. A woman couldn't look in the mirror because she might see a gray hair, and if she, pulled, if she saw the gray hair, she'd pluck it, and that would be considered uh, reaping. So you could, a woman couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath. <laughs> Poor old woman, but really looked awful on the Sabbath. <laughs> they didn't want to look in the mirror, especially if they had false teeth. Okay, all right. <laughs> So it goes on and on. And you see how Israel's leaders had taken something that God had intended for a day of rest, and they had turned it instead into this incredible, this unbelievable burden. You know, just trying to remember all these rules. I guess you would just have to stay at home and sit in bed so that you wouldn't violate it, and that might even... Yeah, you might get in trouble. <laughs> That's about the safest place, I guess. Uh, they were not to carry burdens, but the real burden for the people was dealing with the stubborn blindness and the insensitive spirit of legalism of their supposed spiritual guides, guides, as this healed invalid certainly could testify. In fact, the healed invalid's response to the Jews was, was it, it's, I like it, it was very simple and it was very logical. He did not attempt to argue with them about their lack of compassion for him, or their, he didn't try to argue with them about their twisted view of the Sabbath, 
Instead, he rested his defense on the fact that he simply obeyed the command of the one who had so amazingly made him whole. We see that in verse 11. His logic here and his answer was much like that of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but that man, I just love that man and the way he responded to the religious rulers, you know. He says, uh, you know, one thing I know, I was blind, I was born blind, and now I see. <laughs> and God doesn't hear sinners, so this man, you know, how, he, how could he be a sinner? Because God, no one has ever healed a man born blind. So, you, you know, you guys say he's a sinner. I, I don't know about that. His, how could a sinner, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. I love that response. John 9, verses 30 to 33 of the man born blind. So since the one who healed this man at the pool of Bethesda by just his spoken word had such power to him, it certainly made sense that he also had power and authority to bypass the Pharisees' regulation about carrying a bed pallet on the Sabbath. If you'd been sick for 38 long, miserable years, hoping in some superstitious kind of thing, or perhaps even some angel coming down from heaven to cure you, or you're depending on yourself to get you cured or some other man. And, and then, amazingly, this fellow comes along and instantly makes you whole and then tells you to get up and take your roll up your bed pallet and, and walk. Would you obey him? Yeah, I would do it. I mean, I would be down at his feet and just kissing him and, and praising him and all that. But you certainly would obey the guy. So that's what he's saying here. You know, someone who had so amazingly healed him just by the power of his word, of course he's going to obey him about carrying his bed pallet. It only made sense, and it would be right to obey a man with that kind of power. So the former invalid did what he should do when he was confronted by opposition. And this is a lesson to us. He hid himself behind the Lord, and he fell back on his word. And that's the best thing for us to do when we're opposed even by the religious crowd. We just hide ourselves behind Jesus Christ and say, I'm just obeying his word. When the, when the Jews heard the man confirm that he had indeed been made whole, they notice, you know, they might not have known before this, but now the man just says, I've been made whole. And, and so they, they might exhibit some joy here for him, but do they? No. They still don't. They show no interest in the healing itself and no interest at all in the feelings of the man. To their thinking, you see, it would be better for the man to continue to suffer for another 38 years rather than have been healed on the Sabbath day. Shame, shame. And carry his pallet. They didn't think how the Sabbath, a day of rest, was actually honored by this man now receiving such immense rest from his burden of suffering. They didn't think in in those terms. With scornful indignation, the Jews passed right over the miracle. You notice that in their response to him? They ask him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? They say nothing about his miracle, do they? They don't say, what man is it that, that made you whole? Or told you to, to rise up. They just, what they do is they pass over the miracle. All they want to know is who to punish. Who do we punish? Notice that in their question, they, they uh, wanted to know not, not who had healed the man, but who had told him, who had told him to violate the Sabbath rule about taking up his bed. You know, so they don't, they don't want to know who this man is because he was a healer. They want to know who he is because he had told him to violate the Sabbath by carrying his bed. And what, what do you think they already thought? Who do you think they already thought it was? Yeah. They had really already figured out that it was Jesus, but they wanted positive identification here. Now, we find out in verse 13 that the man did not yet know that it was Jesus who had healed him, although I think he may have suspected, but he didn't know for sure. He did not get to confirm the Lord's identity because it says that the Lord, notice this in verse 13, the Lord conveyed himself away from the multitude at Bethesda, apparently as soon as the man stood up and walked. And the Greek word used for conveyed away is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And I thought that was interesting. Nowhere else do we find that word in the Greek. And it means that he had avoided attention by inclining his head. So he bowed his head and he left the crowd, which is interesting. The, the Lord never sought to be popular 
Instead of courting attention, he shunned it, didn't he? He didn't want the great multitudes wanting him because of his healing powers. Here he was really demonstrating his power and authority over tradition, over the Sabbath. However, though the Lord had slipped quietly away, he was not finished with this former invalid. He still had work remaining to do in this man. His body might have been healed, but Jesus desired more to heal what? His soul. He, he, he desired more to heal the man spiritually. So again, knowing the man's heart, the Lord knew where to find him. He knew that he would find him in the nearby temple. The man actually, apparently, after being stopped by the, the religious policeman, had gone straight to the temple. And most likely, he went there to meet with God and to offer God a thank offering. And he did indeed meet with God when he went to the temple. And notice, too, it says that Jesus found him there. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus findeth him. It's always Jesus who finds us, right? I know we say in our testimonies, I found the Lord, but that's not really accurate. He's the one who found us. Having dealt with the man in grace and mercy, he had yet to deal with him in truth. And so that's what the Lord's going to do now. When the Lord found the man, he said to him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. This statement distinctly tells us that the man's 38 years of ailment had been produced by some kind of previous wickedness on his part. Maybe some of the same wickedness that caused Israel to wander for 38 years. I don't know. Idolatry? I don't know. Maybe he was messing with the occult. We just don't know. But in this case, there was a direct connection between the man's infirmity and his sin. And this serves us as a serious warning, doesn't it? In that some sicknesses are the direct result of our own sin. Furthermore, there is a warning from the Lord about further sin. He forgave the man who might have been there in the temple even confessing his sin at that time. I don't know. But he forgave the man, but he also warned him not to return to that particular sin, whatever it had been, because uh, it could result in something worse. Now, can you imagine something worse than 38 years of total helplessness? I can. Death. I think that's what the Lord is saying. Something worse, you might die. You know, it might take your life. After, and that's serious to think about too, we don't, once we have been forgiven, we should not return. He's talking about a particular sin because we always sin every single day. Well, we need to see, keep ourselves right by confessing our sin, you know, day, on a daily basis. But here he's referring to some particular sin. Well, after his encounter with the Lord Jesus in the temple, the, a man apparently sought out the Jews who had questioned him earlier so that he could now tell them that it was Jesus who had made him whole. Notice that he did not say that it was Jesus who told him to carry his bed pallet on the Sabbath. That was their focus, but not his. His focus was that it was Jesus who had made him whole, and so he emphasized the great miracle. Now, we can assume that the man, having been amazingly healed now both physically and spiritually that we can imagine that he did this as a testimony to Jesus Christ and not to get him in trouble I don't think he ran to the Jews to say ah it was Jesus go arrest him that isn't his I don't I can't imagine that at all Uh, he may have thought that this would cause those Jews the religious rulers to seek for Jesus themselves you know to know him as he now knew him However, if that was his thinking, what? It was wrong. It didn't work. His news only filled them with further fury and probably also a certain amount of, amount of satisfaction because they had something now very critical to add to their list of justified reasons why to rid themselves of Jesus. He had violated the Sabbath. Now, the Lord, of course, was not ignorant about the rabbinical rules and regulations regarding the Sabbath. He knew what would be the consequences of what he did. In fact, he performed, as we said, he performed many of his healings purposely on the Sabbath, and that was because he had come to set his people free from the bondage which the religious rulers had created. Now, we see here also the utter hypocrisy 
of these Jewish religious leaders because we're told that they did what? They sought to persecute and even slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. What hypocrisy. This is sin sickness at its most evil. You know, when it is cloaked in religion, that is really the greatest tool that Satan uses. Here they are, you know, wanting to... They, they, see, they see something terrible about the fact that he made a man whole who suffered for 38 years, and yet they see nothing wrong with wanting to kill him. I mean, that is hypocrisy, isn't it? It'd be like the, the person who gave my son the demerits for stepping on a blade of grass wanting to shoot him. How ridiculous. Apparently, the, uh, the Jews' persecution there, where it says they began to persecute him, or wanted to persecute him, that began, their persecution of him began with an immediate confrontation with him because verse 17 says that he answered them. Now, he couldn't have answered them unless he, they had gone to him. And I'm sure they went to him and said, you know, what, what business have you do, have doing this healing on the Sabbath day? And so he said to them, he, he answered them. And what he said in response to the accusation about why did he break the Sabbath rules is a fantastic statement about his deity. If you don't have that circled in your Bible, you should. And as you can imagine, this really further inflamed the religious rulers. What did he say? He said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And the Jews immediately understood that he, by making that statement, he was making himself equal with God. They understood that he was making reference to the fact that just as God never ceases in his work, like upholding the universe and like uh, sustaining life and begetting and upholding justice and his work of redemption is ongoing, all his works of love, grace, mercy, etc., etc. God keeps, he never ceases working. What he's saying, just as God never ceases in his work, so he likewise never ceases working. He was not just saying, you see, that he was imitating God. He was clearly putting himself on an equal basis with God himself. He called, and they got this when he said, my father, because nobody called God my father. He had done this before, and it really irritated them when he said um, about my father's house, when he was cleansing the temple, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves. That really irked them because that to them was blasphemy. So the emphasis here of, of the Lord's statement, <clears throat> besides, <clears throat> excuse me, besides his deity, the emphasis of his statement was, was with regard to God's work, even on what day? Does God quit working on the Sabbath, which is now Sundays for us? No, of course not. If he did, the whole universe would just collapse. When God rested on the seventh day of the creation week, he only rested from his creative work. He had created everything. He was finished, and he rested from his creative work. He certainly did not cease to work, period, or everything would have come to a halt. So Jesus was saying that as his father continues to work for the welfare of mankind by his great works of grace and mercy, so does he, the Son, Continue even on the Sabbath to perform great works of grace and mercy. The, the physical and the spiritual healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda was just such a work. Well, the reaction to this, and we're going to talk a lot more about the Sabbath and acts of mercy and different things, and we'll get into this in detail. But here, let's just conclude by saying that the reaction to this was that the Jews sought to kill him, what, even more. They sought the more to kill him. They wanted to kill him when he violated the Sabbath, but when he blasphemed, they really wanted to slay him. And the penalty for either one, blasphemy or intentionally violating the Sabbath, was stoning to death. However, as we're going to learn starting next week with the Lord's Sermon, this will be his, not next week, excuse me, two weeks from now, the Lord's Sermon of John 5, verses 19 to 27 Neither one of these accusations against him was accurate, right? You know that. First of all, he had not broken the Mosaic law regarding the Sabbath. He had only broken their laws about the Sabbath. In fact, he himself is, is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
He is the creator. And if he wanted to break the, the Sabbath, he could, couldn't he? Because he created the Sabbath. And secondly, he did not blaspheme about his statements about his relationship with God because those statements were absolutely true. All right, I hope you have a great two weeks, and we'll see you back in two weeks. What's the date? October 19th. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time together. Thank you, Lord, that you are our our Bethesda. You are our house of mercy. You are our Bethlehem, our house of bread, that you are the Lord of the Sabbath, that you are the great creator, God, that you are our redeemer, that you are a friend of the friendless. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ came to preach good tidings to the meek, that he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to free up the the brokenhearted, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to save that which is lost, and to provide for us a way to have not only eternal life, but the abundant life here. Thank you, Lord, that you know the plans for each of us, that you know our hearts like an open book, and that you, you love us anyway. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us of our sin. And if there is one here who has never been forgiven of her sin, I pray she would seriously consider your question, Wilt thou be made whole? We love you, Jesus. Go with each woman. Guide her back to us in two weeks, for we pray in your name. Amen.